it'll tell you. Hello, guys. Welcome back to Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 35. I did not forget this time, although Brent reminded me. (laughs) He forgot. I forgot. We are joined today by the really awesome Laura Becker, artist, photographer, musician, writer. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, it's my pleasure. Um, so I stumbled upon you in the void that is Twitter. Um, I don't know how exactly. I, th- I guess we had a mutual friend or something, but I stumbled upon an interview you had did on another show a couple weeks back. And your story fascinated me because you're one of the very few people who was trans and has tr- detransitioned meaning went, went back on that decision in some way. And that's a really taboo sort of subject right now in our current culture. I feel like people like you tend to like not fit anywhere sometimes. It's like the, the lefties and, and these SJW types sort of shun you, but I imagine even some of the conservative types and the right-wingers might shun you as well. And I view people like you as particularly fascinating um not not, i'm not trying to like fetishize your trauma or anything (laughs) i'll handle that yeah but i think the fact that you know someone has been through that process and then had a change of heart and chose to go a different direction is even more controversial than someone who has just sort of did that and then stuck with it you know but yeah maybe you can uh, tell our audience a little bit about who you are where you're from where you grew up and what led you down that road and then back again? <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. I'm 24 now, almost 25. Oh, you're so young. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. That's something I have going for me right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, and I've always been very... Uh, non-conforming. So I have never really fit in anywhere. Um, I have tech, I've technically been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, but I don't really believe that I have autism, but I do say that I have autistic, uh, traits. Okay. Um, but I was diagnosed with that when I was 11. So already that kind of, you know, that was a rough start. Um, And I guess there's a lot of complicated trauma history, um, but I did have um, undiagnosed CPTSD until I was 22. I still have PTSD, but it's diagnosed now. So, but I was undiagnosed before. Um, So when I started identifying as trans, um, I started questioning my gender. Uh, When I was about 15, I started identifying as genderqueer. Um, and I love that. I thought it was so liberating um, because I've always been very quirky, you know, and very androgynous. And I just kept getting more and more so. Um, so when I found the, you know, gender identity um, and all the different labels, I was really excited because I love to, you know, categorize some of those autistic traits. Um, but it quickly became uh, a very unhealthy thing because the fun and the exploration of gender and being different and non-conforming and exploring sexuality and sex roles and breaking down all these boundaries. There's, it's a double-edged sword to be uh, non-conforming, as I'm sure you know. 
Um, it's a pain in the ass uh, to be different <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, I think artists understand that particularly. Yeah. Yes, because our being brain, an artist, our, our brains definitely work differently than than most people for sure yeah yeah it, it is it is difficult um to kind of find other people to mirror us and relate so that's what was kind of happening with me was I wasn't seeing I wasn't seeing myself being mirrored by anyone around me you know in my immediate family or friends or social group or in the media or anything I was just kind of flamboyant kind of eccentric um straight woman who is very non-conforming and you could even describe me as sort of um butch um although I was straight so there wasn't any, there's not even really a good term for what I was you know I feel like it's it's more than being a tomboy I call it gender non-conforming but I consider myself gender non-conforming now and I was a lot more masculine then so that's why I think the term butch is the best thing to describe <laughs> it it is very but I was a straight woman so again like I only saw women like me a little tiny bit and they were gay or lesbian. And so the people that I actually most related to were actually gay men. So that's kind of what I uh, latched on to. You're on the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I was one of those gay uh, trans men um, that it, it doesn't work out so well, I found. <laughs> because... Um, yeah, part of the problem was that was a huge part of the problem. Um, I had a, a several um, unrequited loves and like weird situationships with gay male friends when I was in high school, like three different that, ones. I love that term, situationships. Yeah, I just learned it recently. <laughs> uh, but it's really perfect. It's a good yeah, <laughs> yeah, because we weren't really together, but it was more. It was uh, it had all the unhealthiness of romantic entanglement but none of the fun or the sex mm -hmm. so it, that was a huge problem because I, I was really close and intimate with these multiple gay guys who didn't know if they were gay or not they were very confused and then I was you know this very you know intense person and so I had like multiple gay men being like, we're soulmates, but I don't want to have sex with you. And I was just like, I don't understand that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like, um, and this combined with so there's sexuality. Really quick though, there's definitely something to that. You know, when I was younger, I did have girlfriends and I think all gay men or most of them go through that trying to be straight phase. And, and I did have very deep connections with them. Um, one of them I still talk to now, you know, she's married now, she has a child and I don't know if she's watching this, but shout out Vanessa. Um, and I did, you know, I loved her and I had a deep connection with her, but yeah, it's the, the sexual arousal part that's lacking, Missing. you know, so it's, it's a, it's a platonic sort of love and it is deep. It's not that it's not a real sort of love. It just doesn't have that physical intimacy layer to it. Yeah. And the thing is that the lines were even more blurred because there was physical intimacy between us, but there was not sexual or romantic Same. intimacy. I was in that situation. Same. I mean, I learned how to make out with her. So <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I didn't even went, get that. It never, it never went further than that, you know? Mm. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's rough, you know, from both perspectives. And now looking back, I definitely have a lot more empathy and understanding from their perspective of having an identity crisis. But I was having that same identity crisis. But on top of it, I had like undiagnosed trauma and like attachment problems and severe depression and suicidal ideation. So those factors all combine 
to me having gender dysphoria or, you know, what could be labeled as gender dysphoria. Um, I was having existential crisis and, you know, immediate like sexual and it's just just many crises, multi. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of just started fixating on my um, on my body because I just I was so irrational. I had really black and white thinking about it. I, you know, because I was thinking like, OK, so we are soulmates. Right. And like we're having this deep, spiritual, intimate, emotional, even physical, platonic thing but there isn't this other part of love. There's no passion, but I have like an extreme amount of passion because I'm extremely passionate, right? I'm an artist and a musician and all this. Yeah, the artist curse. So, and I'm just like, so an artist that, you know, the person doesn't want to make love to them, like a poet who's like writing like elaborate love poetry every day, but like can't get laid. That's a huge problem, Um, you know, for, for poets, you know what I mean? Especially. I'm also a poet, so. Yeah, you understand. So it's just, it was really difficult. And so I started just ruminating, ruminating more and more on my sex characteristics and body and gender. And I guess I just was overwhelmed with everything that was going on. And there didn't seem to be any particular solution. Um, And so I had this concept of gender identity and this concept of what being trans was. I didn't want to be trans. This is a thing that I, I really didn't want to transition. I didn't, I didn't want to be trans. It felt like that's, again, that's even bigger pain in the ass. Like I'm already, you know, weird enough. I have, you know, don't want that on, on top of it. But the dysphoria got so bad. I was so suicidal, um, you know, for, for a really long time. Um, and I just was really hopeless and very desperate. So I was like, well, transition or like, uh, suicide or like so trying to live was, it myself was transitioning something that was recommended to you by someone else as a possible solution I mean I it wasn't recommended specifically to me like by a, a therapist but I was on tumblr a lot so yeah. I've never yeah. been on tumblr like there's like a whole <laughs> world on tumblr that I don't even know about there is yeah um I'm on there now just for like art and aesthetics um but yeah, there's a lot of uh, queer uh, theory that's going on on Tumblr that is <laughs> needs to be uh, unearthed, the underbelly. But um, I saw, I was exposed to that and I guess it was just normalized. And you have all these like young people who are pretty mentally ill, um, mostly young girls um, and they're mentally ill and they're all kind of romanticizing pain and using humor to cope and which is all fine and dandy. I do that all the time, but they're kind of spreading propagandistic ideology that this normalizing, I guess, intense medical intervention. And so I started having this concept like, okay, that's just a thing. Like that is just another form of medical treatment. Like, what do I know about medicine? Like, I I don't give a fuck about science or at the time I care more now, but like I was very into, you know, art and music and whatever. I didn't think about, you know, I wasn't, I I mean, when you go to a doctor or someone, I guess you just back, I was kind of, naively thinking like well they know what they're doing yeah you, I, you, you trust them you know you they're they're touted as the expert and they know better so naturally i think when you're not a doctor or in the science field you were just sort of taught to just mindlessly trust these people and i mean just look at the last 18 19 months and i'll leave it there but. yeah exactly 
Yeah. So I, I'm a lot more skeptical now of uh, everything. Uh, that's what I say. I'm everything critical. But um, at the time, you know, I kind of was just like, well, I don't know. I'm hopeless and crying every day and wanted to kill myself. And I'm just like, I eh, maybe this could help. And so I debated about it for a few, like maybe one or two years um, before I kind of came out as trans when I was 18. And then it took me another two years of kind of ruminating and getting worse and worse, uh, devolving. And then I ended up um, finally taking testosterone um, when I was 20. And then I had a double mastectomy when I was 20. Okay. And um, yeah, so. And how, I, how long, how long did you stick with that? You know, after you had taken the hormones and gotten the surgery, did, did you settle immediately into that? Obviously you, didn't settle, but at some, you know, were you comfortable at some point and then later realized like, wow, that was not a good decision or was it something um, like immediately regret it? You're like, crap, why did I do that? Uh, I don't think I was ever really comfortable or settled with it, but I was had a, a certain level of detachment from it because I was going through a lot of other traumatic stuff, like right around the time of the surgery and the testosterone, I was on it for seven months and it, really elevated all my problems. Like if you're having problems with being too horny and too angry and too reckless, probably don't take testosterone. <laughs> yeah. Um, it doesn't as, help. as men, I can attest. To <laughs> yeah, it doesn't help. And I think, I think I've realized now that the dose I was taking it or prescribed as well was like a bit high, apparently. I mean, you know, it's all kind of unstudied, but like it was even high compared to like what is I don't know. It's all, it's a wild west right now in the gender medicine, yeah. but it was, it was not good. And so I had a lot of traumatic events going on. So when, after the surgery, I was like, I didn't even care about the surgery. I was just like, I'm way more focused on this other stuff. So I had a detachment from it. And I also went off of testosterone for the surgery and I was doing so badly that I was like, I better hold off on going back on it. So I was actually very early in my transition process when I had the surgery, the only effects from testosterone that I had were a little bit of a voice drop, just a little bit. And then um, I can grow like a little bit of like scraggly facial hair right here, my chin. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I was not passing at all, or it was very, uh, very uh, entry level when I had the surgery. So I was just like kind of in limbo after I had the surgery and I was like, all right, I'll go back on testosterone and finish this process and get back on track with the transition after I deal with this trauma. But then dealing with the trauma, you know, lasts kind of a long time. And uh, I said, and then I, in dealing with that, I kind of eventually about um, two years later, uh, detransitioned. And when I was really dealing with actual healing and radical acceptance of my body um, and womanhood. And then I never ended up going back on. And uh, now here I am. Is there a particular aha moment when, when you sort of realize like, okay, you know, I, I'm, I am a woman and there's clearly something more complex going on here that, you know, brought me down this road and, and, and I guess what facilitated that healing? I think it was, it was definitely inspired in part by um, like actually having sex, <laughs> it, like heterosexual um, 
a dating experience. Okay. Like that kind of grounded me back in reality to some extent. Um, and um, it was a really negative relationship, but it, it was just sort of like, he saw me as a woman. He saw me as his girlfriend. And then I kind of started feeling like, huh, maybe that's kind of what I wanted all along. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to be someone's boyfriend. Cause I really just wanted to be with them in any way possible, you know, and I was viewing myself just as someone's partner, whether that was male or female was irrelevant. Cause I just wanted to be someone's like archetypal partner in any way. So that was part of it. And then when I got my, um, when I had a psychological evaluation done and I was diagnosed with PTSD and then I was like, ah, so that's what's wrong with me because I knew there was something else besides just like depression and anxiety and all this. So when I got diagnosed with PTSD, it all started making sense. And um, I started, I guess, just putting the pieces together that had already been really laid out. Like the red flags were just like lit up. I was like, ah, okay. And that's when I started, um, cause I was, it was coincided perfectly with my natural um, evolution of politics as well. Cause I've always been sort of gender critical. You know, I've, I was never one of those like rampant uh, trans activist types. Um, I, I was pretty skeptical of a lot of it, uh, but I was just very, I guess, confused. Um, so I naturally started getting into more like gender critical material. Um, and this coincided right with getting the PTSD diagnosis. And then I was like, yeah, pretty much <laughs> this. Yeah. And so it didn't, it wasn't like a radical shift. It was more like it was, it was just gradually happening over time. And it was just a prolonged period of acceptance um, that was kind of stagnated by these other events. And then I was like, okay. And then I just detransitioned and, um, it just has, it's been a continual process of, of acceptance still since then. So it wasn't just like, ah, I'm a woman now and I can look at myself in the mirror and, you know, it, you know, it took some more time than that. And it's still kind of sinking in, um, as I kind of, uh, embrace, you know, just female solidarity is a big thing that helped. Um, cause before, again, like I said, I was barely relating to anybody, but I was more so relating to men or at least like I was idolizing male attention in any way, you know, in the father, you know, like a, um, father figure type or like male celebrities or, uh, romantic or sexual interests, inspirations, um, we're all men. Um, so f- female solidarity really helped. Um, and, and I, I would accredit that as well. Um, feminism and like, uh, you know, just radical, radical feminism and, uh, you know, accepting womanhood. And you, so you mentioned autism too. And I know researchers have been looking at a connection between the two with people who are trans or, or think they're trans or have gender dysphoria and just the, the amount of them that actually turn out to have autism or do have autism. And it's also weird too, because I'm finding people are like taking on autism now as, as a identity as well, which is kind of weird. I don't understand why people want to uh, view like a, like a disorder or something as their like identity, but. That's because, well, part of it is because of the neurodivergent movement, like saying it's not a disorder. It's just a different way of thinking and Which is is sort of true, I mean, to an extent. To some extent, because there are, like, it is a spectrum. So there are people, you know, who have these autistic characteristics that with the proper resources can really thrive and and kind of function, you know, within all the regular capacities of society. 
So it's not as much of a disorder for them, but it legitimately is like a debilitating condition for, um, for certain people as well. So it's mostly those other types that are just a little more quirky and a little socially awkward that are kind of leading the big discussion on it. So that's a criticism of the neurodiversity movement um, in general. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The, there is a huge correlation between autism. I'm, I don't recall the exact statistic right now, but um, in a recent detransitioner study by Lisa Littman, I believe there was a pretty high correlation of autism in that study. And they're finding um, it's, it's higher among girls too. I've oh heard. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, the, um, I believe there, there's, a, there's just an ex huge, just an exponential, like an anomalic, um, is that a term? Ano there's an anomaly of, um, teen like young girls that are identifying as transgender and many of them are autistic. Um, although autistic boys are also, um, identifying as trans too. That's a hell of a story. <laughs> That's a hell of a story. Um, I think part of the healing too is embracing the story. I think yeah. that, that's also really important. It's just to accept like, okay, well, this is, this is where I've been. This is what I've been through. This is where I am now. And to kind of just accept that to, to an extent. And like you said, you, you still haven't totally settled into it and it, it's a process. Healing isn't something that just happens overnight. Um, how has like art played into that? in regard it, to healing. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because art has been, it's, it, I feel like accepting my true kind of underlying identity almost as an artist, you know, that's like how I present myself to the world now, because that seems like the most accurate term to describe everything about my life, just being creative and artistic. That, that's been one of the most healing things of the, you know, of all my issues. Yeah. Um, because I, have been always very creative and, you know, always doing a lot of different artistic stuff over my life, but I was extremely insecure about it. So I almost had like a repressed, I was in the closet about being an artist because I was just like, uh, I, I could go to art school, but it's just too risky and I, I can't do that. And so I wasted, you know, to some extent I wasted, you know, like four years in kind of this liberal arts program, just studying like just whatever class, you know, gender studies or whatever, before I was, I um, realized like, you know what, if I could go back and do it again, I think maybe I should like go to art school. And once I like kind of enrolled in the art program about two years ago, it's just been, it's just been uphill since then. And I've just been kind of finding my, like, I just feel safe, I guess. Like, I feel like I just, there's more like harmony now. Like I, things are more in alignment because I'm really like embracing my true, my energies and like putting them into something that is productive. And my passion is like being more realized, I guess. Um, I, I think it has to do with, you know, moving the attention away from like my identity in regards to like what I look like and my physical characteristics and like my sexuality or my race and moving it onto what do I do? What do yeah. I make? What do I con contribute? And, you know, I noticed this a lot on like Twitter and, and just looking at people's bios and how they describe themselves on there. And, and it's on the left and the right too. It's, you know, it's on both sides, but they'll put the slogans in there and BLM and like LGBTQ and then you know, rainbow flag, or it, it could be MAGA and American flag and like 
I'm a constitutional conservative or, or whatever it is, but it doesn't actually describe like, what do you do? Like, if you go on my bio, it says what I do. Like, you know, I, I'm a writer, I'm a poet, I'm an artist, I, I play drums. It doesn't say I'm gay. It doesn't, you know, because to me, that's like a secondary aspect of, of who I am. It's this, this thing that I have no control over and didn't choose as right. opposed to the things I choose to pursue, which I feel are far more important aspects of my identity. I completely relate. Um, I think, you know, like, yeah, like I go on, you know, I've gone on dating apps and stuff. I've just seen people, you know, just lifting off those buzzwords. And I'm just like, I don't care if you like say Black Lives Matter in your profile or like, you know, what vaccine or whatever, like what, who, who, what is your personality? Yeah. Like, what, who even are you? Yeah. Um, it's like so- the slogans become their personality and like the individuality gets obliterated or erased. It's like, it doesn't really tell me anything about the person. It just tells me some ideological position that they hold, but. Right. That's what I feel. That's why I kind of view the gender. Well, this is sort of a separate discussion, but I view the gender identity um, craze, I guess right now, a phenomenon is, is a very, is a spiritual crisis um, of, you know, seeking, true identity. So, you know, I was like, initially, again, like I said, it started out really productive and well for me, you know, I felt more confident uh, being gender nonconforming. I, I, I experimented a lot with fashion and, and style and aesthetics. And I felt really artistic and creative about it and more uh, less uh, anxious and, uh, you know, made more friends and well, did more drugs. And so, <laughs> you know, smoked more weed. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> I, um, but then it became this regressive constricting um, process, which is the opposite of what you really want from something that's supposed to be liberating and you know freeing you from something. So when I was transitioning, I was trying to free myself of something, right? Like removing my breasts, I realized like I was really trying to free myself from something. I was literally removing a part of myself. I really wanted to get rid of something. And I realized it actually confined me more. It wasn't liberating. What was more liberating is realizing all of the different things that I can actually do with my body that I actually have, like, you know, not focusing as much on the hypothetical idealized self, but the self that I have and what can I actually use and, and uh, use it to do and create. And so all my potential was being squandered. All my energy was going into like sex, love, you know, bodies, gender. And it was, it was limiting more and more and more because it was all negative too. So it was unproductive. Now, I'm really trying to free those energies to be more expansive. Um, and so now I've kind of returned back to a homeostasis in a way with gender. I'm still working on the, a lot of the other issues because gender was just kind of a maladaptive coping mechanism for the other traumas. Um, but in terms of the gender, I have a homeostasis with it because now I, again, am experimenting with clothes, but now I'm not afraid of femininity if that makes sense. Um, Cause That's before true. I was like, I'm, I feel totally good to like wear men's clothes and like go to goodwill and get the gaudiest gayest thing possible. And <laughs> um, so I still do, but I was like, I can't buy clothes from the women's section. That's just not for me. And then I, now I'm just like, why not both? Like, why would I limit myself? First of all, men's clothes are shit compared to like women, like women just have a lot more options for fabrics and it's patterns. True. Yeah. So it's like for someone who likes a lot of fabrics and patterns and colors, like 
the men's like plaid shirts aren't actually the best. I'm, I found. So, I'm so plain in my dress. Brent's even more plain than me, I think. And it's, it's weird because I, I am also an artist and a creative type. And, you know, I paint and write and play drums and all that stuff. But I'm totally fine with just a nice pair of jeans and, and a good T-shirt. <laughs> well, sometimes you just yeah. like, well, being aesthetic is not necessarily always functional. You know, so sometimes like you have to choose, like, do I want to be aesthetic or do I want to be functional so I can like do my other stuff? Because like you can't play the drums like wearing high heels or something like that, you know, so you can't do it all the time. I certainly don't. (laughs) Um, Um, I wanted to ask, did you find that there were other people like in the Tumblr space and the trans space that also had experience with trauma? Or do you think that's not as common uh, oh, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, yeah, they, they, most of them had trauma for sure. Um, again, I, I didn't really care for the trans community personally at the time or still. Um, so I wasn't really too like chummy with anybody. I was kind of even an outsider within that. But like, if you look at, I mean, basically every single D trans person that I've ever talked to or heard from has trauma. And when I looked at the uh, detransition survey, like I, I believe about 60% said that they have, they transitioned for trauma and mental health related reasons. So absolutely trauma is a huge thing. And like now I go on Tumblr and um, as a 24 year old, and I see kind of these younger girls that are so much like me in every single way, except that they still kind of believe in the gender stuff. Um, And I can see that they're going through a lot of pain. A lot of them are autistic and, um, you know, dealing with uh, with PTSD or child abuse or just, um, you know, depression or other mental health issues. Yeah, it seems like uh, that's also common in the gay community too, is one thing that I noticed uh, with they, there's a lot of, uh, you know, like the kink community specifically is like a subset of like gay men that a lot of the guys that I talked to that were like really into like kink, they had a lot of like PTSD or they had past trauma that they hadn't quite resolved or you could see correlations between their kink and some of their like uh, early childhood experiences that they, and they, the connection between the two is generally not made. It's, it, it just shocked me as I, uh, it, it seems a lot more like, in America and in the West in general, we have this sort of epidemic of trauma and child abuse and mental health, which doesn't really get discussed. It just kind of gets swept under the carpet. And so I, I was wondering, you know, just if, if you had, if you saw that in uh, the trans community. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the kink is completely related to that. I mean, the Tumblr BDSM culture um, it exists. I'll say it certainly exists. Um, and I saw it, personally like I oh man so when, when I was gay you know I um quote unquote went uh you know on grinder a lot and and apps like that which is like uh just like, why <laughs> you know, I'm sure you understand I've never like, had grinder but oh, okay. <laughs> yeah now could you imagine going on grinder but then like being like a straight woman who's like <laughs> trying to like pretend to be a man or like, oh my God, I, I, it was really difficult. Like all the people that I attracted, you know, of course all the like cute twinks or whatever, they, they didn't want to be with me. But so, that, and that was a big source of pain for me. Um, but the guys that were into me on there were like really, really disturbed, you know, 
traumatized, like older bisexual men mm-hmm. and even like repressed home older bisexual uh, gay men. And so those guys, I like, I weirdly found myself in like this really strange, like underground kind of very, very depressing. It wasn't like fun. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't like going to a club and like all these hot guys are around and like you're doing MDMA or something. It was like dingy old men, like in a basement smoking meth. Like it was, it was not, it wasn't a fun place. So I, I was briefly kind of involved in that sort of world. And then I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm feeling this. Um, so I got out of that. Um, but yeah, the, the kink cannot be understated basically. So one of the things I wanted to get into here is how the LGBTQ community, and we really don't consider ourselves very much a part of that community. Like I'm a person, I'm not part of an acronym, that's just me but this general I guess lefty social justice type of community how they respond to people like you when you try to talk about your experience and and share it with them and I imagine you you get a lot of backlash and I've seen some of the backlash on on Twitter so maybe talk about that a bit and you know feeling ostracized from I guess a group of people who you once felt a part of and then as soon as your experience diverges or changes in your views shift they no longer accept you they no longer consider your experience valid or maybe they even consider you a traitor of some sort yeah so I have kind of an interesting experience because there's a lot of detransitioners who were really really tight and had a lot of friends and connections in the trans in the LGBT world I always felt a distance between me and them so I didn't have as much of a loss of that but I still felt it um, because I just felt myself not, I just, I cannot relate to a lot of, I guess, like I'm in art school, first of all, and just the amount of, I guess, gendery, you know, LGBT uh, propaganda is, is so rampant. And I, I just, I don't relate to it. But beyond that, um, I've definitely gotten some um, pushback because like on Tumblr, for example, I... I post my art and my aesthetics are extremely similar to a lot of like basically like the autistic kind of weird girls that are identifying as trans now. They all like my art and and stuff. And so I have this weird position of like I post I don't know if I can post my writings or podcasts on Tumblr on my art account because I'm like, uh, you know, I'll be labeled a turf. I mean, I have been questioned for even like tagging things like taking pieces of art. If I like have rainbow art or whatever, I just, you know, I'm trying to get, you know, likes or whatever for it. Um, so I'll take it like LGB or something like that. And I've gotten messages that are like, where's the tea? So, huh? Yeah. Where's the tea? <laughs> and I don't add, I, where's the tea? It's right there, honey. Just look at it. The tea is there. You know what I mean? But a different type of tea, you know, um, cause I'm spilling the tr- truth there, but I just don't even respond to those messages. Um, you know, I just am like, okay. But on Twitter, you know, I think I think you might have seen that that recently, even a trans person, I don't know if they were trolling or what, but someone did say, like, you you're a quitter. Like you quit. You couldn't handle, you couldn't oh, handle wow. being a trans man. And you have internalized transphobia to the point where you are appropriating womanhood 
because you <laughs> because you detransitioned. No, I, they might have been trolling, but it it was pretty convincing if if they weren't. Honestly, I don't think they were. I don't think they were. There are quite a few of these people out there, and they're like you said. I think a lot of them are just they're mentally ill. There's also a lot of children yeah. too, like yeah. teenagers and and you know kids that are still in college, and they don't really even know what they're saying they just you know they feel so strongly identified with a particular set of ideology that when they see people who have experiences that differ from their perspectives they see it almost as a personal attack they feel that 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 you know your experience is just an attack on them personally when it has absolutely nothing to do with them right yeah they do feel they feel invalidated because seeing another I mean, I completely understand this because I get, you know, triggered by things all the time. Um, but I kind of realize like their experience is distinct from my own. Like they don't invalidate me or validate me. That's part of it is you need to have an internal sense of validation. Yes, and being trans is almost like inherently you don't have that because yeah. you're not actually kind of in congruence with, you know, reality. Um, well, not every it, single trans person, but a lot, a lot of, of it, the younger ones. A lot of it depends or almost all of it depends on the external validation of everyone else around you. It's why, you know, you must use these pronouns. You must use this name. And, and if you don't, it's they view that as like a little erasure of their existence. Yes. This person was even telling me, like, the thing that makes you a woman is if people view you as a woman. If they use the pronouns, that makes you a woman because you're culturally being seen as one. Wow. So I, I'm just like, that's a, that's, that's pretty delusional. Um, so yeah, it is a lot of young kids, um, that do it. And I understand it's, it's very, which is the sad part is like all this craze is being hyped up by all these, you know, pretty mentally unstable kids online. And then they're being congratulated by all these, you know, well-intentioned, but ignorant, like liberals, older liberals, like old, especially older uh, liberal women and like professors and teachers and a lot of people in the helping professions, which of course are like mostly women. Um, and it's just really sad to see because all the older feminists <laughs> are just like, no, like you're undoing like all the work, yeah. you know, they're trying to do here. It's like biology doesn't exist to them anymore. And just to talk about biology, <laughs> it's like offensive. It's like a, tr yeah, it's like a trigger for them. And I understand. Cause like, I mean, I always joke like, I mean, I don't necessarily want to have a sex drive. I don't necessarily want to have like to take a shower every day. Like it's, it's a pain in the ass to have like a physical body and be like an animal and a human creature on this planet. Yeah, I just want to hear it and just just want to be a soul, right? Like that's <laughs> that's what I think gender is like to these people. It was to me basically like a soul, a spiritual thing. I don't want to be a human or limited or constrained i'm i'm beyond that i'm too cerebral i'm too intellectual for that i'm gonna project myself into this like abstract concept of a spiritual soul that doesn't need bodies but then when i'm reminded of biological reality that makes me have cognitive dissonance so then i get really triggered and offended by that so then i have to pretend like you know that that person is actually wrong by saying my, that my you know fantasy of reality is um is actually my fantasy you know and that's why they say that that's not real that they uh trans people will say that reality is actually the fantasy and that anyone who says otherwise is 
regressive or living in the past or like on the wrong side of history or that yeah. they don't know science <laughs> and things like that. Are you uh, are you familiar with the disaffected podcast by Oh yeah. Welcome. Yeah, cuz you you mentioned how it's it's a lot of women who seem to be particularly fighting for the cause and reinforcing a lot of this mentality in in the youth right now and it, and they probably do it out of good intention yeah out of nurturing and all that but josh locum talks about that uh commonly on his podcast as well so yeah that's something that's a concept that i definitely have um picked up on from josh on that on that podcast um he's absolutely correct it is a very feminized um kind of experience, uh, you know, this kind of over, like, um, what's the term, like radical empathy being it's like mothering. It's like this intense mothering almost. And I think, yeah, coddling. Because, you know, women are more nurturing, not all women, obviously, but biologically it makes sense why women are going to be more nurturing because yeah. they're childbearers and it makes sense. And I think that's why it does come from good intentions. They, they see people struggling and they see these, you know, these young people, you know, hurting and they want to alleviate that in some way. They want to help them. They want to fix the situation. So instead of, you know, looking deeper, they will just say, oh, well, maybe, maybe you're the other gender. And maybe if you just did this and you did that, you'd, you'd feel better because perhaps it worked for one or two people that they know. And they just assume that, well, that's the solution across the board for these symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another thing that, that Josh points out on disaffected is the cluster B yes. personality types of these, these types of um, mothers or women. It's very, borderline it's very histrionic and narcissistic so these mothers then or teachers or therapists they have this kind of god complex because they feel like they're doing this great social good and it's it's very religious um you know like a gender therapist you know just like i remember like i had a tr i had an ftm trans man professor and i actually went to him to just kind of vent about my life um when i was like maybe 19 and uh, that professor was actually the person who recommended me to go to the informed consent clinic where I got my testosterone. So this person basically helped indoctrinate me in a way. Cause she was just like, yo, you know, you can get free testosterone, you know, here it's kind of like, here's a pamphlet, you know, consider, you know, coming to church. Um, and of course I was already like, had my foot in the door and I was like, okay, I'm interested in what you have to say. Please, it reminds you know, me of the old people. saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. Oh and, yeah. And it's a lot of that. I think that's what's happening right now. And, and I, I do think most of the people pushing this stuff are well-meaning. I just don't think they're really capable of looking at the nuance of this. Yeah. Because they're, because nuance in general as a culture the wokeness and the, the outrage culture, um, hypercritical with no nuance is just, a, it's just across the board for every single issue. So now we have this like radical issue of gender that's, you know, been kind of piggybacked onto the gay rights movement that was a pretty, a fairly good success, you know, to the point where people are like, okay, well, this is just the next, you know, step in, in human progress or whatever. Um, and they don't put much thought into it. Yeah. Um, so I do, I do think it's mostly well-intentioned, but, but ignorance, um, like I, I've been thinking a lot how, you know, kindness, it is not always, it's it, like 
the truth is more kind than placating somebody. Yeah. So feeding someone's delusion, even in the short term, to just kind of relieve your own distress or like, you know, that you have to deal with it um, is not kind in the long term. It's actually very, it can be abusive. It's neglectful. It's selfish in a way. Because <laughs> yeah. we're, you know, in order to avoid the awkward feelings of having to explicate the truth, you are, you know, sort of seeding this lie so that, you know, you feel better personally and it has nothing to do with the other person. And, and it, it's, it's just not, it's not really a service. It's not, the, yeah, it's not the kind thing to do. I'm going to bring up Jordan Peterson again, which I do. Yeah. I love Jordan Peterson, but I love I, him too. I think that's part of the appeal of why a lot of lost young people, especially young men are, you know, looking, looking at someone like him and looking at his advice is because he's not doing that. He's not saying you're perfect the way you are. You're fine. Just the way you are. You're, you're great. You know, you're an individual, you're unique. He's saying, no, you're not what you could be. You're not, you're not fulfilling your potential. You could do better. You could be something more. Get your yes. life in order, clean your damn room, stop, <laughs> you know, looking outside at the world and criticizing everything when you, when you can't even put your own self, you know, in order. Yeah. And I think there's a big problem in our culture where we're just coddling people, coddling, saying you're perfect the way you are and you're unique and you're special. And it's like, that's not what people need to hear, man, because it's not the truth. The truth is people need to hear that you could be better. You're, maybe mm-hmm. you're not living up to your potential. Maybe you're not what you should be or could be. And exactly. I, yeah. I think, I think more people need to hear that. It certainly helped me hearing that message. And I know it's helped a lot of other people out there. Yeah. Jordan Peterson is daddy. Um, but the radical feminists hate me. I think when I go off about they hate Jordan, him. They Jordan Peterson, him. they can't stand him. Well, I can't deal with a lot of the radical feminists either. Like I said, that's why I say like female solidarity yeah. more than like, you know, specific political labels I guess um but yeah there are you that's it's definitely I mean I found like in my darkest times over the years I did turn to politics to give me a sense of well not only can I mean it has some positive effects like it's good to be aware of like the news and I used to tune into like you know Stephen Colbert like all the late night shows uh to kind of keep up with the news every day and it did help because it provided some relief and it gave me a greater sense of like larger worldview, getting out of my own personal pain and like seeing other pain and realizing like this sure. collective there's, experience. There's value in that. Yeah. But it can be when you focus too much on that and then you don't and you try to like solve these huge existential problems for like the greater culture or world and you neglect your own. Like the fact that like like society would be better if you actually fulfilled your potential and like actually got a real job and yeah. did something, you know, contributed something and, Pick you know, the damn close up off the floor, you know, yeah, pick the clothes up. trying to restructure society and then you can't even pick your clothes up. So exactly. It's a, it's yeah. a valid point. It's a very valid point. Mm-hmm. Daniel yeah. was having an argument earlier on Twitter with uh, a couple of these, you know, radical trans yeah. activist types. And this one uh, person had like this whole her whole living room was just like a total mess 
<laughs> it was like a motorcycle that was being deconstructed and reconstructed, I guess, like in the middle of the living room. And, you know, Daniel made the point, like, maybe you should organize your living room before you try to reorganize. I'm like, why don't you clean your freaking house? Grow up. Like she had her TV yeah. on two plastic crates and there's cups everywhere and shit all over the floor and a motorcycle mm. in the living room. And it's like, and you're over here telling me like, I'm attacking trans people and this and that. It's like, no, I was having a conversation with them. And I was trying to explain that maybe it is more productive to not spend your life being angry and offended at everything and attacking and trying to change people's minds and maybe use that time and that energy in building your own thing, pursuing your own enterprise. Mm -hmm. And they just did not want to hear it there. It's like they're upset that I'm not upset all the time and not seeing myself. They're, they are, they're jealous for sure. They're I, I need to see myself as a victim and constantly oppressed. And the fact that I don't infuriates them to no end. It's like, you need to be as angry and upset as I am. And if you're not, it's like, how dare you tell me not to be angry and upset and to do something productive with my life. You're attacking trans people. I'm like, yeah, because <laughs> they're afraid. They're afraid. They actually have a fear of that that they it's it's very fragile ego right it's like um even if they're not necessarily narcissistic like they have a fra fragile ego construction so they they feel invalidated anytime they see someone you know doing well because they're just like what why am i failing at this and then they deny that that person is doing well or that well, they they're listing. failing at anything they eventually started listing all of these things well life isn't fair and i've learned that and that you know, I have no control of anything. That's what life has taught me. And I'm just like, well, that, that's kind mm. of a miserable way to look at life. And they're like, well, this and this and this happened to me. And then this happened to me and then this. And then I responded. I'm like, well, I could sit here too and list many things, terrible traumas and setbacks and things that I've lived through and experienced as well. But where will that get me? That's not going to, to help me improve my life. What's helped me improve my life is to keep going and moving forward despite that stuff, not to sit there and list it every single time someone points out that I'm being a miserable cunt. So. <laughs> well, I think that person sounds like they're going through some probably intense trauma. Clearly. It, it, it is hard when you are in that. That's something I'm dealing with right now is like the victim mindset. Yeah. And on one hand, it's a coping mechanism and it is valid. But it's also something that needs to shift. Um, and, it, you know, you I regress back into it. You need to let it pass through you. It's not that you shouldn't be upset or you shouldn't feel those feelings from your trauma. It's perfectly valid to feel those things. The point is when you fixate on it and then you get stuck in that mindset. Yeah. And, and then you, you walk see around always seeing yourself as a victim and the world is out to get you. And it's just not fair. Why am I gay? Why can't I have a normal life? Why can't I have a normal family? Why can't I be normal? None of that is going to change what I am. I just, I am this. So instead of fixating on that, it's like, all right, well, let me accept that this is what I am. And this is the, the hand I've been dealt. And what do I do with that hand? And what do I do? That that's is what I, th I think that's stuff. scarier. I think it's, it's, it's scary because once you kind of, because it actually is, it is, like I said, it's a coping mechanism. So like when you're in that victim space, it's a kind of sheltered, cocooned little space where you're safe from the threat and fear of like becoming too powerful almost. Like there's so much potential. Like right now I'm like starting to finally feel like, wow, I can actually achieve things. I'm actually pretty smart and like capable if I actually yeah. do something. Well, you, but you, now you, I have a new problem. 
I have a new problem, which is like, well, okay, now how the fuck do I do any of this? Like, how do I monetize this? How do I yeah. now, tra- you know? So it's an, it, I think people are afraid of, of achieving things because they're, they don't know how, cause it's too yeah. overwhelming. So then they fix that in this one thing. It's easier to stay in that space. I found. Well, you, you posted the other day that you were, I guess you were like almost surprised that people wanted to talk to you and that you had a few interviews lined up and you were just, I guess, like shocked, like, wow, people actually give a shit about what what I do or what I've been through and they want to yeah. talk to me like who the hell am I I'm like a nobody so I think that that too is a really intimidating thing is people don't know how to handle it when you start actually trying to like be true to yourself be open be honest and not play a role and then when you do people recognize that and they they want they gravitate towards that. At least the other real people who are being yeah. who are being themselves, they start to see that. That's why I invite you on the show. I'm like, this person's authentic. They're not afraid yeah. to talk. Well, that- afraid to say that I've been through this. They're not afraid to say that I'm having a hard time right now. All those things. And I mean, you don't strike me as someone who wants to fixate on your victimhood. You seem like someone who who wants to share their story to perhaps help someone else, maybe avoid some of the pitfalls that yeah. you went through. I mean, fixating on my pain is sort of my ho- a hobby of mine. <laughs> Artist. I'm try- yeah, it's but I'm trying to, so. exactly. Yeah, so I'm trying to fixate on it, but through in art. It, yeah, in a productive way. No, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, I, I, you know, I think the, the victim mindset, you know, when people, when you have been victimized, and people treat then you someone treats you with respect it feels wrong to you it actually can mm. di- physically feels it doesn't make sense to you so you keep attracting and being attracted to more people that um replicate that initial victimhood so you keep being victimized over and over again which then further reinforces it so then when you have an interruption and then someone like kind of stable or healthy comes into your life who actually treats you well you're suspicious of that person even critical and because it's disrupting your entire concept of self. So I've been kind of, I've been shifting out of that um, a lot right now. So like, yeah, I have been, I guess, not as shocked as in the past, but like just flattered, I guess, that people want to talk to me because for so long, um, I was that very, very socially awkward, anxious um, person who was kind of seen as a loser and like middle and high school and like didn't have friends and like, just didn't even bother to talk to people, but I would just be like writing like intense poetry and like novels all the time and stuff, you know, and I now relate. I'm just I like, completely oh, relate, so. yes. <laughs> so now this is why we're both like having microphones and talking so much to make up for that. I think it almost feels like just my life has been building up to this, to yeah, know, becoming as authentic as possible and to just no longer being afraid to say everything and anything that's on my mind and no longer being afraid of being wrong. And that's the thing. It's like, people are, they're scared of being wrong. They don't want to mm. say something because they're afraid it's going to be pointed out to them that they're incorrect, not realizing that you have to speak and be wrong for someone to point it out to you, perhaps for you to realize that and then you become more right. The more wrong you are over time and you talk and you speak and people correct you, point it out to you, you get closer and closer to being more right, more accurate, you know, your yeah. of reality. So it is important to have the conversations to, and to talk and to be authentic and to express oneself, honestly, even if you may be wrong or incorrect and it, it will be uncomfortable, you will be challenged, but it, it's part of it. Well, that's why that's why the concept that's why freedom of speech is just 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 such it's not the biggest it's such a huge issue right now um well it's always an issue but 
It's like it's, it's a debate amendment. right now. It's the First Amendment. First Amendment. Yeah, the it's First Amendment. Comes literally. for all the others because all the others, in a sense, can't even exist without that one. Right, because if you you need freedom of speech to be able to find out what the truth is, you know, you need to be able to ask questions and receive feedback and give answers, so you can come closer and closer and closer to what the truth and like the authentic truth is. And without that, you're never going to really know, and you could believe that you're wrong you know, your whole life. Um, it's really dangerous. Yeah. So that's why I, that's why, again, I think the whole like uh, being truthful over being kind thing is really important. And that's language um, and censorship of our language and thought in regards to the gender stuff is really insidious because it's, it's, it's really harmful to everybody, everybody's psyche, but it's also especially harmful to those actually dealing with the, the gender dysphoria because they're being lied to and then if somebody um, comes along and starts then to actually give them truth, even if it is like a respectful a Twitter conversation, right? Then they, they feel even more attacked. And that conversation too, that's the thing. Like I was totally respectful to this person. I was really simply trying to understand like, why do you think this is a productive way to conduct yourself? That's it. And I tried to get them to question that. Like maybe if you, if you shifted your energy in another way, like they were attacking gothics. That was where this came from. I don't know if you know gothics. She's no. a political commentator. She has a she's a Twitch streamer, glasses, black woman, very pretty. She's awesome. No. Check out Gothics. So they okay. they were they were attacking her and calling her a transphobe and all this stuff. So I was responding to them and I'm like, you know, why are you so fixated on on, on you know controlling how other people speak and think about you when you can't change those people? You have no control over that. So instead of using all this energy attacking it, maybe use that energy to do your own thing, build your own platform, start your own YouTube channel, your own Twitch or whatever, and then deconstruct whatever gothics or whoever else is saying on, on your platform within your own community or whatever. Hmm. But I just, I view that as a way more productive way to handle that sort of thing than to just go on Twitter and to be like, well, you're trash, you're trash, you're trash. It's my duty to call you out and to correct you. That's how they feel. Like it's their yeah. duty. Like they must correct the wrong thing at every turn. And if you spend your life doing that, you are going to be miserable and exhausted because you're always going to encounter someone who disagrees with the way you view yourself or want to be addressed or whatever. And your whole life will become a battleground where you're just constantly fighting and arguing with people and miserable and angry and sad. Yeah. Like, yeah. So trying exactly. to get it across to them like, hey, maybe you change the mindset a bit and like, and you'll, you'll be less angry and less sad. And it's like, they don't want to hear that. Yeah, a person like that is not even going to be able to like receive that information at face value because they're they, that person was probably is probably way too deep in whatever trauma they're going through right now to even consider like being healthy this is something that i've kind of have realized like there's a huge 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 gap between like positive and negative like are good and bad so like when i was really hating myself like when you truly hate yourself or have an extreme view in one direction or another you can't just jump right to the opposite view. So like, again, these sort of performative platitudes of things like, you know, love yourself, accept yourself, like, okay, they're all good, but like, you need to really break it down more. So like, I've, that's why radical acceptance is the best thing because I started to go from like being like, okay, I'm like a worthless, negative, bad person. I can't just jump from being like, oh, I'm just a worthwhile, good, amazing person. Like it's, it's gonna feel false. Neither is realistic. 
Right. We're complicated. We're full of flaws and we're full of strengths. It's yeah. So it's a gray. I, I realize like it's a gray scale. So I'm somewhere in the gray. So if I can just kind of accept the gray matter, the gray that I'm at right now, this shade of gray, eventually I'll see like I can move a little bit towards like the lighter end. And that's what I've been doing now. So now I do have the confidence to say like, no, I am like a worthwhile, amazing person. I still have flaws, but it, it, it's taken a few years to kind of step incrementally increase that. So that's why someone who is so stuck in that black and white thinking is not going to be able to be confronted with with truth. They it, yeah. they just will have a complete shutdown. Yeah. They plug their ears and they yell. Can we, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk more about your actual art because yeah. I've been kind of like mm. scrolling through it. Let's pull some up on the website here. Um, and I love that you use like Funk God. Yeah. It's like a brand. Yeah. The neon color. Funk it's, God. It's so yes. cool. You're, you're also a musician, correct? You, you yeah, a music production. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's, I mean, let's look at the art first. So I wanted to ask, have you looked into NFTs at all? Because I see <laughs> a lot of these and I'm, I'm sensing like a lot of NFT. Minted on the blockchain. Collection. Sure. It's like these like these funky little like uh, abstract patterns, like a lot, a lot of the bright colors that could be like a whole collection into Ooh, and like of itself. Or try harder. And then the ones with the sayings that could be like a whole nother collection. These like, would make great clothing designs too. Great. That's true. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I know I have thought about NFTs, but I, I feel like it's kind of kind of a scam. Um, it's so weird. I haven't. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really trust it. Um, um, my profile picture is worth $15,000. <laughs> that's kind of weird we'll see these, these all these like these really abstract like tie-dye neon patterns are like jumping out to me as like a, its own little collection like mm -hmm. and you could well if you want to see more of those i have it those the the abstract sort of trippy things i call those like manipulations like because they're like photo manipulations uh, so this so like i have a whole tab on my website just for photo manipulations um but these these are like my main these are mostly like the collages and stuff um but yeah i uh i'm glad you're pulling this up because I, I i'm pretty proud of my website the funk god uh hey, i love the way stick i got going on you have so, there's, there's just yeah. so much work like it's it's you're, you're I like the skeletons you're stuff. literally doing yeah. the work it's like so much i love it Oops. i know i'm literally doing work now i <laughs> no i feel i for a while for a long time i wasn't like doing anything that's why i'm just like I just, I'm working on a song right now um, that kind of, I sample from quotes from like a podcast I did about overexcitability and kind of an artistic, like sensory thing. And there's a quote in there that's like, um, uh, I need to get this chaos out some way. And the whole song is like insanely trippy and just funky and fast and intense. So I'm literally, it's very meta because I'm saying like, I need to get this chaos out. That's why I'm literally making this song right now. So that's why I view the art same way who who are who would you say are your biggest artistic and musical influences oh there's so many um yeah, well just, if we want to start with like visual art oh man I think Keith Haring is one of my favorites um because I really like his colors and kind of the pop art the funky stuff um my, why am I totally blanking on like yeah, I feel like all of I, my I favorite would, artists right I would blank on that question too honestly I'm like damn it's just there's so <laughs> many I think yeah. music really influences my visual art though there's probably even more than yeah like for for my music and art definitely well funk of all you know funkiness I mean like 
Oingo Boingo, uh, Talking Heads. Talking Heads. Um, uh, like, um, oh my God, I can't even think. There's so many. I don't know. My my music tastes are all over the place, man. Ask Brent. Like, I listen to everything from, like, yeah, jazz and funk and that sort of stuff. But, like, I like metal. Like, I listen to a lot. I listen to death metal and stuff. Like, Mm. the people who can't handle that. And I'm like, yeah, well, it's fine. Brent hates it. I'm like... Yeah, I I like kind of like <laughs> heavy metal, but yes. like Judas Priest or something like that. Yeah, I like that stuff too. But yeah. I, I even listen to some of the really like intense stuff. And, and I think there's a place for that in the music world. And, you know, the way I always looked at music and, and art in general is that it should be capable of expressing the full range of human emotion and experiences. And that includes anger, that includes frustration, that includes chaos and and music can express that too. I don't believe music should or has to be always pretty or or peaceful or sad. And a lot of music is sad, but I think- Yeah, I don't really like sad music. Anger is a valid feeling as well. And I think- It is. I think styles like metal or and a lot of hip hop as well and rap really express that in a way that you know you just can't in another way so oh yeah i like that one the cosmic eye i, I like it. the crow one with the moon you know i will say one of my main influences is probably just like acid like lsd <laughs> <laughs> that's that's mm-hmm. that's one of my yeah. main influences really acid yeah never really guests, like yeah <laughs> never right guests. yeah i yeah. mean the, the psychedelic experience is certainly a transformative one and I think, you know, it, it, people should always approach it with caution. I think sometimes yes. there are people who, who do that and aren't quite ready for the, <laughs> the veil to be lifted. I, I call them boundary dissolving experiences and, and mm. you have to make sure you're in like the proper set and setting and with people you're comfortable with. And cause you don't know what can happen. You know, you're, you're literally blowing your consciousness wide open. And yeah you have to be oh, yeah. careful when you do that and but I think there's value in the experience I don't tell people not to do it I just caution them you know make sure you know why you're doing it and what the reason is is, is your motivation to get fucked up or are you trying to, right are you trying to obtain or glean some deeper understanding of yourself or or reality and I think if you approach them in that way then it's a perfectly valid way to explore one's consciousness, although not necessary. You know, there are people who achieve certain states just from meditating and things like that. So I don't think you can achieve a, a, totally from meditating what you can achieve from, from LSD, <laughs> but, but absolutely. I've, I've, I've read and heard some very interesting stories from people who have meditated themselves <laughs> into a <laughs> pretty interesting states of consciousness without I guess substances I guess it would just maybe be more ca- time consuming although Alice sure. is pretty time consuming yeah. well, but, but there's something, hours there's to something to be said for taking the long road as opposed to the shortcut you know yeah yeah but I, 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 think, sure. I think there is something to the psychedelic experience that should be explored more investigated more and the taboo it's it's slowly being lifted I feel like the taboo is being lifted but just caution. I just caution people, like, don't jump into something and, and if you're not ready and definitely don't approach it. We're like, I'm just trying to get fucked up. Like, well, that's why yeah, that, that's not. <laughs> yeah. 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 I always view it as a really spiritual therapeutic experience. Yeah. Um, Mushrooms, especially. I mean, there's a lot of research being done on psilocybin now and it's helping like terminal patients cope with death and things like that. So even as a medicine, I, I think there's there's really a lot that is yet to be explored in the potential of psychedelics. And yeah. If you want to look at some of the 
these are my monochrome photos, which is yeah. very. I love like, black and white photos. I dig them. Yeah, I, I haven't like done like color is like probably my favorite thing, as you can tell by my other stuff. So right. I do have yeah. if you look at my yeah. color photos, those are like those are really uh, psychedelic, although yeah. I do. I do have fondness for these, but they contrast the other stuff. Well, you know, they kind of yeah. show the, the two sides. Oh, oh, I yeah, dig well, it. So yeah. trippy. Yeah, see, these, these kind of look like how you see things when you are in the psychedelic state. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like my vision has been like permanently like altered from doing so much acid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like legit. Um, I don't mind it because I have I have such a like a, a certain eye for for certain things now. Are you a fan um, of Alex Gray? Alex who? Alex Gray. Who's that? No, I haven't heard of him. Um, he is most well known for doing the art for the band Tool. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But look up Alex Gray. Look him up. I mean, he's like, when it comes to oil paint and painting, he's probably the king of, of Sayy. Alex Gray, uh, it's G R E Y, I believe. Alex Gray. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. so anyway, I see. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I met him this once. This is like DMT Very stuff. Bad. Yes. I think actually when I met him years ago, this is like 2010, we went to a documentary screening actually at his, um, on his property in his estate, um, which was about DMT. That was what the documentary was about. And I don't know, my friends and I are pretty convinced he was tripping out the whole time <laughs> that we were there. Because <laughs> like my friend swears he caught him having a private moment to himself. <laughs> Like he walked by and he was like having a private moment to himself and he was just kind of like dancing around and going la di da and I'm like yeah he's he's stripping and he had like he had a bottle when he was doing signings he had a plastic water bottle next to him with mm. some really interesting looking goo in it my god and I'm pretty sure it was ayahuasca oh my god yeah no I mean I imagine someone who an individual who has seen this. Yeah. Enough times, like it probably exists on a whole different frequency. His art is insane. oh my! There's wow, look at the sex one. There's wow, some, yeah. there's some stuff I haven't going seen on that here. one before. Yeah, he he has a lot of art that kind of looks, I guess, at the spiritual creation aspect of of sex. I'm sure the gender gender critical people hate this. Oh, he's got book. like a whole series. Oh, I love like, this sort of stuff. <laughs> I'm sorry, I meant the 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 SJW types, not the gender critical types. Yeah, it's it's interesting, like especially the the ones with like the mother with the child inside of her. I think those are really interesting. But yes, he, the birthing like, person. Yeah, he like the birthing person. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's like yeah. moms are like portals. <laughs> but I love how he like <clears throat> shows like the veins and 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 the arteries and all that stuff, and it's like you're almost like looking at them through an X-ray. It's it's crazy, man. Like, yeah, this is this is this is some of the best. Yeah. And he does all that in paint. Oh, man with a brush yeah that's crazy it's yeah i don't have the patience for that you got plenty of time girl i do oil paint <laughs> it does it does take a lot of patience for sure especially with the drying time and all that and and i work in layers so you know that you kind of build up whereas but i think it's the most forgiving of mediums to be honest like people look mm. at oil and i guess they're intimidated by it because they see all these like really crazy realistic things that people do with it but i've seen people do that in acrylics as well and I think acrylic paint is is more difficult just because it dries like that. You know, oil, you could do something and put stroke here and a stroke there and ah, I fucked it up. You can wipe it right off. You mm. can probably wipe it right off an hour later, two hours later, the next day. So, you know, you can- But you know what the most, 
the most forgiving medium though is is digital. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I've, I've been exploring that more. Brent got me a Wacom pad recently, one of these. Yeah. So I've I've been you know exploring that more, and I was I was doing digital art back when I was like fifteen, actually, on Photoshop, and then I kind of went away from it for many years, and and now recently having that, I, I've been exploring it more, and yeah, working in layers and just the most forgiving of all mediums you can literally erase any mistake and change yeah. what you want and it's there's no cleanup there's no drying time you don't have to photograph your piece to like get it online yeah it's just all it's just done you know so but I, I, i've been it. as someone who does mo primarily digital <laughs> work like there is like there is something to be said um for the physical the physical making experience yeah. that you just cannot get from that I agree um different so that's that's something that I I do want to get into more of that like I'd like to do more traditional collage or mixed media I feel like because, a, it's like you're putting in like an energy and, and like the physical object becomes something almost like sacred yeah Me? and if you mess it up you don't have another version you have to like redo the entire thing yeah so it's, it's you more special over it. and like i said with oil paint you you do have time you can wipe things off and it's why i'll paint in layers you know i might do a layer of something and then once it's done i'll let it settle and dry and then maybe i'll you know i'll do something else over it and as i'm painting that if i fuck up i can wipe that away and the other layers already dry so it, it doesn't affect it it's fine but then it's but it, but there's still like a tangible physical like effect or of, of that though because it's still there in a way like if you, you could paint over it but it, it like you you at least are aware like yeah, yeah there's some weird stuff going on or like but can, you can fix too. mistakes like, I love when they're like, beautiful when they x-ray like these old paintings I think there was a recent Vermeer that they x-rayed and they found that uh, painted over in the background, like on one of the walls in the painting, there was a painting in the painting of Cupid, which had been painted over and was hidden, was gone. And they didn't realize it was there until they x-rayed the painting. And they realized like, whoa, there's this whole other layer like hidden now that's been painted over. <laughs> yeah. Like stuff like that is really interesting to me. Or when they x-ray it just to see like the the artistic decisions that are made when the artist yeah. changes their mind about a composition and that that kind of lives on in the painting and the layers I always find fascinating and you don't get that with digital art so yeah you don't with, with digital I mean that's part of digital culture in general is like you only see the finished result of something yeah. like you can't it's hard to I mean I guess that's why it's popular to like do you know, work in progress, you know, time-lapse videos or whatever, but like it is so processed and so immediate, there's immediate gratification. You can't see like all of the work and background that went into making whatever <clears throat> content it is, which, which, which is a level of detachment that exists for like the consumer. Yeah. What's so great about NFTs though. And, you know, I know, you know, people don't quite understand it yet or people view it as a scam is like it is really giving digital artists their day in the sun which i find interesting because before nfts how could you own a digital piece of art maybe you could buy a print but there could be a whole bunch of those prints right how could you actually prove that say you you own that piece of art when it's digital anyone can copy it and and put it on their page or print it themselves if they want to hang it on their wall. But to verify ownership, I think that's what's making blockchain such an interesting technology when it comes to crypto is that it can be verified on a ledger, right? And it's there, it's public knowledge, it's, it's linked to a specific wallet. 
And if you buy the digital piece of art and sure, anyone can copy it and paste it or whatever, but they can't sell it. Only you can sell it. It's verified that you own it. Before mm-hmm. that, well, it's why I think digital art was kind of overlooked. It was more relegated to graphic design or, or marketing and, and advertising and that sort of thing and not taken as seriously by the art world. And now you have NFTs being sold at Sotheby's, being sold at Christie's auctions and, you know, Beeple. I don't know if you know Beeple. He's in yeah. Beeple. Yeah. So it's, it's a whole new era for art now. And I, I'm for it, you know, and as a traditional artist too, someone who does work more in traditional meeting, mediums, I'm for it. I love seeing digital artists get their day in the sun now and to be able to like make a living off their work and to sell it. So, yeah, I, I guess I, I've kind of like, I, I have looked into it, but I, I guess I, um, from what I've re- seen is sur- sort of like a pyramid scheme type thing going on. Some of it um, for sure. There's definitely, there's definitely some money laundering and things going on in there. But when, yeah. you're, when you're really immersed in it, you realize like these people are serious. For the most part, all, most of the people who are involved in it, they are serious. They take it serious. They like this shit. <laughs> you know? well, there, I, th- I do think there's certain people that would find value in owning the piece. I guess I feel like for most people, they more just don't care about what they can do with it, which is, I think, more of a reason why digital art just isn't taken as seriously because like they're like, OK, I can look at it. But like until you like make a physical print and hang it on a wall or put it on a shoe, like what can they really do with it? Well, look at it this way. Animated art, for example, a lot a lot of NFTs are like they move, you know, not all of them, but quite a lot of them. They, they move. They're animated. And how do you display something like that on a wall? Well, what we're seeing now is we're, we're seeing new types of frames being developed that are just screens, right? Designed as frames and they're screens and their whole purpose isn't to like do this, right? Like use a computer. Their purpose is to live on a wall so they can display their digital art that moves. So when someone comes into their house, they can show them like, hey, here's this digital piece of art that I own. Wow, look at that, it's moving, you know? You yeah, no, that's like some Hogwarts shit. You can't do shit. that with paint. You just can't do that with paint. So I, I find it revolutionary. I think that's crazy. I would love to get a digital frame at some point and own a moving piece of art that's hanging in my home and something so that would be that would be really cool we're yeah. seeing that it's happening already right now as we speak so gotta commercialize that shit yeah. get in into every house <laughs> we'll, we'll walk you through it maybe if you want to know more about the nft world and it's you know it is it is a crazy interesting thing like i said my profile picture of a cat is worth fifteen thousand dollars i don't even know how to explain that to people and when you try to tell them that they can't even wrap their head around it they're like how the fuck is that dumbass drawing of a cat sell it sell it now and they're like sell it now sell it now and it's like (laughs) no so what so so you so you so what do you mean it's worth fifteen thousand dollars like you bought it for fifteen no so we, we purchased it for about 2600 at the time with considering what the price of ethereum was at the time that we bought it it was yeah. like less than one ethereum and at the time that was about 2600 dollars that i moved into ethereum and then bought and that was a really scary thing when i did it i was like i don't know if i'm making a stupid decision now there's a I lot could, of money i consulted a friend i was like is this a good decision is this a serious project do you think this is going to be important and since then it has at one point it almost went up to eight Ethereum. So at one point it was, I think, worth almost like $35,000 or something. And I didn't sell it. I was like, no, I'm holding it. And even now during the bear market, while everything's, everything's down right now, partly because Ethereum is up and people are selling shit, 
it's still three times more valuable than what I paid for it initially. And Mm. it's weird, you know, trying to explain it to people because it's not just a piece of art that I can verify I own on my wallet and the blockchain. It acts as a membership card as well to a, it gives you access to a community of different collectors and creators. And that's so you, the, yeah, that's where the true so you go in, lies. So you go, you can use that to access like the online gallery spaces. Not so much that. It's like being part of that club. This one in particular is called the sure. Gutter Cat Gang. So being part of the Gutter Cat Gang connects me with all of these other NFT people. Some who are just collectors, some are collectors and artists and other creators. It's like, for example, this is yeah. my wallet on oh, OpenSea. Sure. And so OpenSea is one of the marketplaces that you can use to buy and sell NFTs. And you can see there's a lot of like cat themed stuff because I'm in the gutter cat gang. I have like, uh, and I have a full set. So there's like, four different species in the gutter keg. All of it sounds so silly. When you it just to does sound silly. But um, there are perks to it. So like if you're part of the club, like my cat is like the first thing. Once in there. a while, they'll do free Here's airdrops, right? They might do a collab with a different artist and they pay the artist and then they drop a free piece of art to members of the club. But they're also starting to transition into real life in real life events, you know, where members of, of the club or getting together and organizing events and art galleries and that and that sort of thing too. And owning the NFT is your membership card in a sense, but it's also kind of like a stock. It's like saying, like, I believe in this company, this community, and I own a share. In it. Hmm. And the more people who are involved and take it seriously, the more the community builds culture and connects people, the, the value of the asset holds or goes up. I really like the rats. The gutter cat gang yeah. is a limited collection of 3,000 cats. There's also 3,000 rats, dogs, and pigeons yeah. now. But the gutter rats have uh, this yeah. really unique aesthetic. So it's, it's cool, too, because the way these are made is that each of the traits are drawn separately by hand. So they are, you know, drawn and created by an artist, all the different traits. But what they do, and this is what makes NFT so unique and new is the traits are put into a computer program. And then when the person purchases the NFT or mints it onto the blockchain, a certain amount of them, in this case, 3000 for each set is spit out randomly. And you don't know what they're gonna look like until they're purchased and minted. So even the creators of them don't know how they're all gonna turn out in the end, it's it's random. So it's like they put it, they make all these characteristics, then put them into a generator. Yes, into a computer. And then when it's purchased and minted, it's it spits spits the NFT out in mm. a randomized pattern. So you don't know what they're going to look like beforehand. And huh. that, I like that it, a lot. You know, th- that's never happened before in the art world. It's it's definitely a unique thing. Yeah, that's the, I think the, the act of it, like experimentation and, and the process as the art itself, that's one of my favorite things to do. That's why I do like, the photo manipulations yeah, it's like, like that sort of yeah let's see it's like it's like, like the combining of the the human aspect of you know the human creativity with technology with computers so these are the most expensive ones and you can see where it says last that's the price that it was sold for so this guy right here is sold the highest last sale sold for 10, 10 ethereum which yeah. is the equivalent right now of roughly like forty eight thousand yeah. dollars wow yeah and trying to explain to people how these things hold value when they're not involved in it is fun because <laughs> some of them get so mad, you know, they're like, how is that worth that much? That's ridiculous. I can just right click it and save it. We actually call them right click savers. 
Hmm. Yeah, they don't understand the like blockchain and that you can verify the ownership of it. What's crazy too is a lot of crypto people are resistant to NFTs, and I thought you know more of them would be embracing it. But oh, there's a lot of Bitcoin maximalists yeah, yeah. that are <laughs> yeah, like only Bitcoin, only is, Bitcoin, is the only one that's going to be valuable. Everything else is going to tank and go to zero, and that's very short sighted. But but yeah, the gutter rats are cute. They're fun. And there's this whole like community around it yeah. that is evolving. It's in a constant state of growth. And they're doing this whole thing with like the metaverse, which is going to be like an online space where you can, your, your, your NFT will act as a membership card that will allow you access to that space. And you'll get with it a digital avatar that you can use to enter the space and interact with different things. But it's more than that. What I like is that they're, they're taking it into in real life as well. You know, they're organizing real life meetups and galleries. And so Art Basel in Miami, that's about to happen soon. And Gutter Cat Gang is going to do a, a meetup there. So yeah, a lot of these people are actually connecting in real life. And I think the networking is where the true value lies. Yeah. Yeah. Because like I've had people purchase my art simply because I'm part of the group, part of the network, you know, and I made some gutter cat derivative pieces for fun and people collect them, you know, Hmm. and they pay me for them. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. I've never (laughs) met you in real life. I don't even know what you look like. Your avatar is a cat. Thank you for supporting me. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy, man. It's it's a very interesting world. and so it's yeah. an interesting way for artists, especially to be able to monetize their mm-hmm. content, because when you <laughs> mint something on the blockchain, you can either do like additions or you can have like a one of one, it's called, and you can price it accordingly. Yeah. And, you know, people will collect it, especially if you're, you know, you're interacting in like NF Twitter or whatever. Yeah. You and can set royalties too, which is interesting. So, so then anytime hmm. somebody sells it again, you get a cut, you get a percentage. So say, say you mint one of your pieces and you set it for like, I don't know, $1,000 in Ethereum, you can put like a 10% royalty on there. So when you sell it, right, it sells for $1,000, you'll get 10% of that back as well. When that person sells it, and if they sell it higher, obviously they're going to want to try to sell it higher and not low. But even if they sell it lower, you still get 10% of that transaction every time mm. it trades hands. So it's literally giving artists a, a like consistent, stable form of income and, yeah. Yeah. I think if I I think I think I if I I need to like establish more of my like presence so people are seeing the art and then they're like I want an NFT of that yes. and then make that available. Yeah, I think Well, your story too is a big part of it, you know. And, and I feel the same way. It's like people don't just want to invest in what I'm making, they want to invest in me. And that, yeah. that, that's the biggest thing I've learned in this whole thing is like when you're authentic and you tell your story and you're just you, you know, you will find your people, your collectors will start to trickle in slowly and be like, wow, I like this person. I like what they stand for. And I also like their art. So I want to, I want to support them. You know? Yeah. That's why I'm trying to get involved in like trauma <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> trauma Twitter. What's trauma, trauma Twitter? Twitter? Trauma Twitter. No, no, that's not a thing. I, that's not that's a thing. Not, well, it's not, an, I don't know if that's the official term for whatever <laughs> it is, but I mean, it's just true. Like, you know, any, they say in any business, like I learned in my business class, like, you know, you ha- you're selling your values, you're selling your story, you're selling who you are, not, you know, just what you provide. Oh, so funk God, I mean, it's very on the nose in many ways. 
the funk god because i am funk god i mean i have like my car license plate is funk god <laughs> like, yeah. nice yeah i have funk god written on my shoes like my custom vans <laughs> that i made so we mentioned gutter rats and on that note maybe we'll end here too what is it we've been going like an hour and a half yeah, yeah. we're about an hour and a half you you have pet rats correct oh yeah i used to have pet rats when i was a kid i had the white ones though not the gray ones and people thought that was weird they're like aren't you supposed to just buy those to feed them to snakes i'm like no they're kind of cool pets in themselves too. yeah and i don't know many people who have pet rats and so you have a rat drawer explain that i have a rat drawer yeah so i have four rats and they have a nice you want to bring one on let's see one. Oh my god yeah just wait a second i'll totally <laughs> grab one of them yeah <laughs> I was like, we can't let this end. I was was, talking about the rats. I have her Instagram pulled up. So I was looking at the latest video, which is just like this little rat that she has like like, coming up nibbling on her like pop pie or whatever. And I was like, this is the candlestick. It's in a drawer, right? Yeah, yeah, it's in a drawer. I love it. I love it. I love it. But yeah, I used to have like, I think two or three of them. They had the little wheel and stuff. Oh my God, look at them. I feel like there's such a, there's such like, Unmisunderstood taboo creatures. People look at rats and they're like, oh, rats are nasty, rats are disgusting. And it's like, no, they're, I mean, they're just animals. Yeah, a lot of them on the street and stuff in the wild, sure, they carry disease and stuff. Adorable. But they are just creatures and they're fucking cute as hell. Look at Oh, yeah. I mean, these, like, um, these rats have been domesticated for, for like dozens of years. Like, they're a totally different species than, than like the gray or brown rat. This is Danny. Danny, um, hey. Danny, Danny, cute little, he's adorable. He just winked at me. I know he is such a sweetheart, but yeah, the rat drawer. Yeah, so I, the rats, like again, they have like a nice rat mansion for a cage and all that. <laughs> right. But you know, I I like the boys, you know, to hang out with them. Um, so they're mostly free roaming around my room. Oh wow! So with that, you know, they they can get into stuff and they will get into everything. They're very true things like. Uh, yeah, they do <laughs> really a lot. Um, so I have to like be careful, you know, not to leave stuff out. Um, but like I have a bedside table um, and uh, there's a drawer and I was I used to like just keep stuff in there like so I could just reach into my bed because where I conduct like all my business. But I, you know, they just kept going in there. And so I was like, you know what, I, I'll just let them have it. Like, just, <laughs> give, just give it to them because they're going to keep okay. going in there. So I just put a blanket down and now, whenever I, you know, can't find them, they're not in the cage or they're not in my bed or I can't find them. I'm like, I know where they are. They're, they're in the, the rat drawer. drawer. So then I just, oh. you know, reach down and just open the drawer. And sure enough, they're in there. That I is just cool. grab a rat whenever I need it. Yeah. So the people look at you weird for having pet rats. Yeah, they do. Even my therapist, like she wouldn't even like see them on Zoom. She was like, <sighs> I cannot. I was like, you have a rat phobia? Yeah. Like, you need to unlearn that girl. It's, um, they have a there's a taboo about them. Maybe it goes back to the Black Plague or something. I don't know what it is. But well, it's probably really it's, it's like a very deep sort of human yeah. thing. Like we have this disgust reaction, and you know, and evolutionarily associating like rats and vermin yeah. carry disease. Mm-hmm. So it was evolutionarily advantageous for us as a people to have that disgust reaction mm-hmm. to vermin and other, you know, like snakes too. Things. Similar thing with snakes. Right, yeah. exactly. So it's the same kind of situation. But it, when you explain to somebody, you know, <clears throat> this is a pet rat, it's always been a pet rat, you know, they're not carrying diseases. Yeah, they're fine, they're healthy. But they're that, clean. that old part of their brain is still getting triggered yeah. when they see it and they're like, ah. I don't know. I guess it's just yeah. when I was younger, that was kind of 
kicked out of me. I mean, my dad used to like find weird bugs from the yard and bring them all inside and tell us, <laughs> like, hey, check this out. So I was very desensitized to that stuff when I was young, bugs and, and rats. And, and we were like, hey, let's get pet rats. And I had them for a while. I can't remember their names though. I was wow. so young. I was like 13, 14, I think. And mm. I think uh we I think we had a boy and a girl too. And like one of them had a oh. baby. And I think the, the yeah, you don't want to have that. You don't yeah. want to have that. They made it like crazy. Yeah, but I think like the mom like ate the baby or something. Mm. Like, yeah, they're they're it's a crazy. I think you gotta like separate them or something like that. Oh yeah, I have four boys. This I have um Danny, Cosmo. Conan and uh, Norm. Norm was named after Norm McDonald. Uh, so Norm Rat Donald, Conan O'Brien Rat. This is <laughs> Danny Elf Rat. And then Cosmo is just my cosmic rat. Cosmic rat. Oh, I love it. I love it. Man, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks for sharing your story. And thanks for just being freaking awesome and brave and yeah. and creative. And Oh, yeah. Where can everybody yeah, where find, can your find you? Oh, okay. Well, you can find me on Twitter at, of course, Rat Funk. And you can find uh, my website, which is funkgod.wixsite.com slash funkgod. And also on Instagram, funkgodartist. And on Spotify, funkgod as well. It's, it's all under funkgod. It's really my brand. Awesome. So we'll put up links in the description and things. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we'd love to have you back at some point and where we're trying to get our rotating cast of interesting people and maybe we'll meet in person one day. That'd be fun too. So yeah. Where do you, where do you guys live? We are currently in Florida right now. Mm, Florida. Florida. Soon okay. to be, soon to be Miami. Yeah. We're going to transition at some point, but I'm, I'm originally from New Jersey and I'm still kind of back and forth between there. And we still have an apartment in New York that we're in the process of vacating. And mm. yeah, it's been a long yeah, see, time. I'm in Wisconsin. So I'm in Milwaukee. Middle of nowhere. <laughs> Well, I am in like I think it's the twenty-fourth largest city yeah, Milwaukee. in America. Milwaukee. Yeah. But <laughs> also who gives a fuck about Milwaukee, but <laughs> we need no. to visit Milwaukee. Laura, thank you so much again. Um, have a nice day. We'll be in touch. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. This has been a great time. Bye guys.